0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: The savings rock when you find a new way to roll like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you
0: with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get
1: cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply.
2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, Democrats make another run at passing a voting rights bill. Lovett and I talk to Dr. Ashish Jha, the Dean of Public Health at Brown University, about what the latest CDC guidance and scary COVID headlines actually mean for you. And a new analysis about why we're all so angry points to Fox News as the culprit. Wow! What? Sometimes it's the person you most expect. <laughs> but first... Some fun news. Crooked Media's very first book is now for sale at crooked.com slash store. It's called The Crooked Guide to Societal Reentry. And it's a hilarious, beautifully illustrated 75-page book that has everything you need to know about how to make a seamless transition back into public life after being stuck at home for more than a year. The guide is written by What A Day newsletter editor Sarah Lazarus and illustrated by Crooked's own Dianita Ramesh. Get a copy for yourself and all your friends now. Again, that's crooked.com slash store cool fun book guys it's awesome everybody should check it out it's a good gift it's a good gift, it's a good
3: looking, gift. For a good gift. looking for a good gift looking for a i guess not a stocking No, nope, nope not that not i don't that. know i don't know when so. you go, i don't know when you when you goyim celebrate your nonsense you don't know when we celebrate christmas it's not in
2: the summer <laughs> that's uh, a. Yeah, it's tough sorry sorry to make you know that fact uh all right let's get to the news <laughs> <laughs> I'm performing for Elijah because he's in the studio. Yeah,
3: I'm yeah, <laughs> doing been a lot all, of jokes directly. I'm all directing them just at to Elijah, Elijah today. Like the old days. All
2: right, let's get to the news. After a strategy session at the White House on Friday, Democrats in Congress are expected to unveil new versions of the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act this week. The idea here is to scale back the original bill so that they're focused mostly on preventing voter suppression, electoral subversion, and partisan gerrymandering, which will get Joe Manchin on board And at least in Joe Manchin's mind, hopefully get some Republicans on board, not holding our breath there. Um, We also keep getting reminders about why this is also important. Mother Jones's Ari Berman just reported on a new analysis from the Democratic data firm Target Smart that shows Republicans can take back control of the House in 2022 by drawing gerrymandered congressional districts in just four states that they already control, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina and Texas. Uh, And on the election subversion front, uh, we just learned from notes that the Department of Justice officials released to Congress that Donald Trump called acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen a few days before the attack on the Capitol and told him, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. That's great. That's a cool quote. All right. uh, Lots to unpack here. Let's start with the twin threats of gerrymandering and election subversion and then work our way towards the solutions. Um, Tommy, what does Ari Berman's piece tell us about the size and scope of the Republican advantage when it comes to redistricting?
0: So uh, I thought the best overall quote in the Ari Berman piece was from everybody's favorite uh, pill pusher turned member of Congress, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who said that (laughs) redistricting alone should get us the majority back. So Republicans get to draw 187 congressional districts total. Democrats get to draw 75. The rest get drawn by commissions or states with divided government. According to Ari's piece, Republicans could pick up six to 13 seats in the House via redistricting in Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, and Texas alone. So in other words, the majority could be handed from the Democrats to the Republicans just because the maps get redrawn, not because anything else changed. So we are staring down the barrel of a gun right now, uh, at least the congressional majority is.
2: They need five seats to flip. They might be able to get five seats just out of Florida. Forget Just about the other three states.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, they, the, the because our majority is so narrow, they probably won't do that. They will probably not over-gerrymander in some of these places because... Uh, yeah, they have, they're famous for showing restraint. Well, no, the reason... No, no, not because they care, but not out of restraint, <laughs> out of politics, because... You know, one they can you can over gerrymander. You can draw the maps and distribute your Republicans just too delicately. You get too greedy and then all of a sudden a wave election could overcome the gerrymander. The problem is our majority is so narrow that they don't have to do that. They can actually draw pretty strong Republican seats in a lot of these states, uh, even though they've lost the ability to gerrymander as as extensively in places like Wisconsin, because we now have the governorship and a few other states. uh, They can do it in a way that is. Uh, kind of insurmountable, even with a wave election, even if we have a midterm in which people turn out as much as they did turn out in 2020.
2: You know, the the White House has been telling voting rights activists that they can out some of these voter suppression laws, which, you know, there's a big debate over whether you can. People are upset that the White House is saying that, understandably putting it all on activists and organizers. But, like, how much more difficult is it to out gerrymandering? <laughs> Tommy?
0: So I I, I get... Something I I kind of get the messaging goals here, which is we don't want to make it sound so dire, the voter suppression uh, tactic so dire that Democrats get sad and give up, right? Like they want people to stay motivated, but you just can't out organize a gerrymander. You can't out organize election subversion laws that take the power away from voters and hand them to state legislatures so that they can overturn an election result. That's just it's impossible. Like the problem with gerrymandering is. Uh, the further and further we go, the computer software and other programs get more sophisticated and allow you to draw up just perfect maps for either side that are almost unbeatable. You can't organize your way out of that. And so I don't know if they were talking about voter suppression laws or voter ID laws or something associated with um, gerrymandering and not gerrymandering itself, but the suggestion that you can out-organize gerrymandering is wrong. And I can understand why that would land as um, almost insulting sounding if you're an activist who cares about this deeply.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's part of the reason also why I've been sort of annoyed that most of the coverage about voter suppression since the election has been focused on some of the voter suppression laws and not the fact that Republicans are about to gerrymander the shit out of the map for a decade. Because like it is horrific to, for example, you know, ban people from ban volunteers from giving food and water to people waiting in an hour line like that's awful. Right. But there are ways to get around that. Right. There are ways to make sure that people uh, voters are educated about the hurdles they have to jump over to register to vote and to make sure they're not purged from rolls like all this stuff is horrible. But there are ways to get around it. You know, David Shore, Democratic data analyst, says in this Mother Jones piece, if everyone voted the same way as in 2020, Republicans would win the House through redistricting alone. That's how hard it is to organize a gerrymander. And he said the ban on gerrymandering that's contained in. This voting rights legislation is about five times more important than the rest of the bill combined.
3: Yeah, I mean you can't organize someone's house from a ninety ten Democratic district to a fifty five forty five Republican <laughs> district. That's yeah, here's how, how we're going to
2: beat that: we're going to move you out of the districts. <laughs> um,
3: and, and I and I do think actually, even though it is absolutely true, like we've seen this in in. Uh, in, remember from Pennsylvania to Georgia, you can organize and educate voters to overcome these things. And there are knock-on effects. When you tell, when you tell people their vote is threatened, you can sometimes instill people uh, a kind of real pressure and, and desire to get out there and overcome these hurdles. Uh, that said, it is a frustrating message. I agree, Tommy, that it is about just sort of signaling, like, we think this fight may be really, really hard, if not impossible. And if we lose it, we still want to make sure people understand that we can win in the midterms. But It does take the pressure off of Congress to say that we can overcome these things with organization when the message needs to be, this is dire, this is an emergency, we need to act, we need to
0: act right now. Yeah, look, we don't want anyone to give up hope. We're going to stay you know, involved in fighting and all this. But like Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report drew up a hypothetical map of what an extreme gerrymander in Texas could look like. And you could end up with Republicans having 25 seats compared to 13 seats for Democrats, even though Biden lost the state by only five points. So that is how much you can distort what a state actually looks like when it comes to its partisan breakdown compared to its congressional representation. And that's why it could be a a disaster. And one other thing I just
3: add about this, uh, Democrats, even if we controlled all state legislatures and can draw all maps because Democrats tend to live in more Democratic districts than Republicans live in Republican districts. It's actually harder for Democrats to gerrymander to the extent that Republicans can do it because Democrats live in these concentrated areas in a way that Republicans don't. Even these rural districts in which Republicans kind of draw these maps to give themselves an advantage, there are more Democrats there than there are in the heart of, say, like Nancy Pelosi's district or Adam Schiff's district or any, or AOC's district or any of a number of very concentrated Democratic districts.
2: There, there is a one last thing on this. There is a timing issue here too. The census releases the data that allows states to draw the maps on August sixteenth. So the, it's coming fast. But even if uh, Congress passes a law banning gerrymandering, sort of after the 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 census data is released and some maps are drawn, it's the ban would still sort of put the legal challenges to this on firmer ground. You know, John Roberts wrote himself in an opinion where he said gerrymandering was okay. Uh, he said the framers gave Congress the power to do something about partisan gerrymandering in the elections clause. So John Roberts himself is basically tempting Congress like it's on you. You want to pass something. It'll be fine. But if you don't pass anything, we're not going to uphold uh, any challenges to gerrymandering. And he also gave but aren't racially. Right. Um, well, that's the thing. He yeah. also gave
3: Republicans an instruction manual for how to get racist gerrymanders through by leaving the the part in which they are trying to sort by race out of the
2: conversation and making it partisan because that, according to John Roberts, is protective. Uh, Tommy, I want to get your thoughts on this Trump story, which once again falls into the category of uh, shocking but not surprising. Um, <laughs> Philip Bump at The Washington Post did point out that what's new about the story Uh, is the note suggesting that Trump and congressional Republicans may have been coordinating their efforts to overturn the election. Um, What should we, and especially Congress, do with that information?
0: (laughs) I am very upset by this story. I found it not surprising, but shocking, as you say. I just want to spend a minute talking about Trump telling the attorney general that uh, he may not be following the Internet the way I do and therefore (laughs) didn't understand that the election had been stolen from him. This seems important to, to harp on because it does speak to where he's getting his information and how, you know, I think it was one week ago or two weeks ago, we we talked about the conspiracy theory that somehow the Est- Italians had stolen the election or someone in the U.S. embassy in Rome had stolen the election. And that's literally what he's talking about. And it's, he's not just saying these things before, you know, uh, a, a crowd of Aryan youths led by Charlie Kirk. He's saying this stuff to the attorney general of the United States that he appointed. And that's scary. I I think the
2: bigger question is why wasn't he following the internet as closely as Trump? I mean, you know,
3: if you want to be good at your job, you should know what your what your boss is up to and reading. You know, so you can just make conversation. Got to read the whole internet. Got to read the mm.
2: love it. What do we do about this? What do we do
3: about it? That's like, I would say two things. One, I know we know, but it is amazing how close we were to it all coming apart. Mm -hmm. We are very, very lucky. We are very lucky that even after Barr was gone and and Trump tried to find someone who was more loyal to him in this job, there were these places where there was resistance, where there did not have to be. There did not have to be resistance in the Georgia Secretary of State's office. There did not have to be resistance in a uh, political, uh, uh, in terms of political decision making at DOJ. The other piece of this is we need to get to the bottom of what kind of conversations Trump was having with members of Congress, like Mo Brooks, like Jim Jordan, like Kevin McCarthy. That needs to be part of the investigation uh, that the committee is running right now, they need to treat those members as what they are, which is uh, some combination of witnesses and perpetrators.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's some, there's a CNN piece over the weekend where there was some question about whether they would be calling members of Congress as witnesses or potentially subpoenaing or or how they might get that information from them or that testimony. Rather, um, I hope there's no question about whether someone like Jim Jordan will be called to testify. I mean, did you see this fumbling interview he did with some local journalist from Ohio where he was asked if he talked to Trump on January 6th? It's clear that guy is hiding something.
2: He definitely talked to him. Yeah, it's been like a couple (laughs) interviews like this where he's like, "Uh, I talk to the president all the time. Jim Jordan,
3: always very careful with his work. You know, it's like these guys, these, these guys only sand the edges off in moments
2: like these when they're worried about what could happen if they're under oath. But you're absolutely right that this is why it's, The one six commission can't just be about the attack itself. It's about everything that led up to the attack, including Trump's efforts all along the way from the day after the election through the insurrection to overturn the election itself and the members of Congress who coordinated with them. And I also think I was glad to see that as Democrats make this new push for like a revised voting rights legislation, that they're going to include language to prevent election subversion. I think that language really needs to be quite strong. I mean, there's a question of. How much can you do about states trying to subvert the election, Republican officials and states on the federal level? They, I think they need to amend the Electoral Act of 1887 so that you need like two thirds of both houses of Congress to send the electors back to the states. That way, if it's two thirds, it's less likely to be partisan in nature, like this idea that. Now, whoever controls Congress can reject the president. Whichever party controls Congress can just reject the results of a presidential election is fucking absurd. Yeah. And, and I, it should never have been a law.
3: <laughs> the um, I feel like there was this there's this question, like when Trump said to Rosen, leave it up to me and the congressman, what did he mean? Right. How how concrete were the conversations he had with members of Congress? And I think that's really, really important, except that in the end. He, d- I, I want to know how much communication there was. I want to know how much coordination uh, there was. But I think one of the lessons of January six is even if there was none, they coordinated on television. They coordinated on Twitter. On he, the internet. On the internet, <laughs> Trump's internet, and mm-hmm. they and they knew what they had to do. They didn't need the, the, the same. the The members of Congress needed the same amount of instruction as the people on the National Mall. They knew what Trump wanted them to do, and that's all that really mattered. And so. Uh, like the fact that he was in conversation with them is important. But ultimately, what we are watching is a threat that if basically what we know is that if Republicans have both houses of Congress, uh, the, uh, the ability to actually have a presidential election is completely in doubt.
2: Uh, let's talk about the path forward on protecting voting rights and democracy. On Sunday, Joe Manchin told Jake Tapper that while he's optimistic about coming up with a compromise on voting rights, he still doesn't support a filibuster carve out to pass it. Here's a clip.
1: Jake, I can't imagine a carve out because I was here in 2013 when it was called a carve out. We're just going to do the cabinet for the president, and then it went into we're going to do the judges who are lifetime appointments for circuit and district. They were even going to do Supreme Court, but they didn't at that time. The Democrats were in control. 2017, Mitch McConnell's in control, comes right back in, and guess what? That carve out worked to really carve us up pretty bad. Then you got the Supreme Court. Okay? So there's no stopping it. And if we don't put this place back in order, you get rid of the filibuster, which makes us work together. And I've said this: the whole, the, the the brilliancy of our of our founding fathers was this. Why in the world did they give two senators to Rhode Island and Delaware at the time they were forming this great nation of ours? When they told New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio, "Hey, you only get two too." Mm-hmm. It was basically to make us work together, so that the big states wouldn't overrun the little states. It's a minority participation.
2: Killing us, Joe. You're killing us. One thing I'll just
3: say about that clip is like. He actually that is an accurate history of what happened in the past several years to the filibuster. It does seem as though that is where he started learning history. And he has zero knowledge of anything (laughs) that came before that first vote to uh, change the filibuster rules.
2: Love it. What are the options here? Like, why, why do you think Democrats are going through all the trouble of introducing new legislation and compromise legislation, et cetera, et cetera, if that's Joe Manchin's position still? I think
3: that's the only option, right? We have to we have to fake it till we make it. We have to hope that there's some chance that either, either by some miracle, and I think this is all but impossible, Joe Manchin finds nine other senators to join Lisa Murkowski and doing what Republicans, as he, as Manchin correctly points out, were willing to do, uh, only you know, thirteen or fourteen years ago, which is uphold the fucking Voting Rights Act. Uh, Yeah, he
2: mentioned in that Tapper interview that it was something like 98 to nothing uh, when they last voted on this. Um,
3: Or at some point, Joe Manchin will reckon with the fact that he will answer his own question. Why has this changed? Well, because one of the two parties has turned against democracy. And at every turn in our history, when it became time to defend the right to vote, the equal citizenship of every person in this country, it was a partisan decision. Because one one party knew they would lose because of it. And so he will either come to recognize that or he'll say that. Well, I don't think he will say that. I don't think you should say send it.
2: him that. You should send him those remarks.
3: Though. But he, but he always finds new words. Now Jake's question, which is a totally fair question, can you imagine doing it? No, I can't imagine doing it. Even if he can, in his beautiful, fantastic imagination conjure an image of him passing a voting rights bill with 50 votes. He can't say that right now anyway, because he has this theory that he can get these votes. So you have to just hope that that is what he is saying now. And he will allow the circumstances of Republicans blocking the bill to lead him to maybe pass it in the future. Barring that, I don't know what else you're supposed to do. So we have to just go through the motions and try to
2: pass it. What do you think, Tommy? What's going on in that big, beautiful houseboat sized brain of his? I wonder who
0: wrote that, that carved out, carved up quip. And if they got a big old pat on the back after they it's came up quippy. with it, it's I, very... I, I bet somebody did. M- my only hope with Manchin is that he's just not going to change his answer until he does. And, yeah. you know, And in, like, in some ways, that's the smartest path for him, just to just hold out. You, you, when you decide to flip-flop, you flip-flop and you do it until you're ready. You don't do it. Um To Lovett's point earlier, Jamel Bowie had a, a great piece in the New York Times about how the attack on voting rights is partisan. So no one should be surprised that the response is partisan as well. The 14th Amendment with the Equal Protection Clause passed on a party line vote. The 15th Amendment that prohibits denying uh, the right to vote based on race passed on a party line vote. Yes, the civil rights bills in the 60s were bipartisan, but the parties hadn't divided like they are today. So it's sort of an apples and oranges comparison. So it's just a very frustrated kind of half-assed look at history by our friend Mr. Manchin. As Lovett said, it doesn't start in 2013. It it goes back a lot further. Um, Also, I don't know if I've mentioned this person before, there's this uh, reporter at the New Yorker that I love, Jane Mayer. She wrote a book. Have I ever brought this up on the show?
3: Oh, man, I don't here we go. Somebody she had an amazing money, piece
0: yeah. today in is the New about dark Yorker money? about all it's the about dark money, isn't it? About all the big dark money groups yep, there it is. leading the fight on these voting restrictions. It's the Heritage Foundation. It's Alec. It's Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. It's a bunch of weird billionaires you've never heard of. The Lynd and Harry Bradley Foundation there are these like reactionists. You know, sort of weird racist old white people that funded Charles Murray, the author of the Bell Curves Scholarship. So it's all these sort of usual big muddied interest uh, groups pushing these voter suppression bills. I forgot your question, John. I just got so caught up in the carved up, carved no, out. Part no, of this no, thing.
2: no. Ah. I-, I was just waiting for you to go from the Jane Mayer reference to a Rick Perlstein book reference. So I don't know if you could work that oh, out as well. <laughs> Reagan Land. I'm still working through that one.
0: I jumped over to the Facebook book, which is very, qu- it's quite good.
2: Oh, that's good. That's good. God, he's a reader. He is a reader. He is a reader. Our boy, guy's Tommy's a reader. A reader. Um, guys, a few... I, I'm just a, I'm
0: just a small town boy from Los Angeles in in Brooklyn right now. So it's just me and my book kind yeah, of company. Tommy's live from in Brooklyn New York. right
2: now. He's in uh, he's in the Big Apple. Um, okay, uh, there's I have nothing to say. There, no. <laughs> I don't know. Eat, a, ba- k- eat a bagel. Let's keep going. K- <laughs> love
0: it. I love it. Doing the show from here is. Unbelievably luxurious. You get three extra hours oh, to prep in the morning. I, I didn't know what to do with myself. The, I was getting the, room the,
3: service on room service. The, the East Coast crooked media life is pretty fucking great.
2: It's incredible. Okay. Guys. okay. I'm saying. Um, we like, John, you're cool too. No, no, I'm, I'm, I've been in uh, Los Angeles for over a year, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so there's a few, few other things on this in terms of the path forward. I do think, love it, like you said, you know, fake it till you make it is the strategy here. I was somewhat hopeful reading a, a quote from Amy Klobuchar that she said at a press conference last week. Mm-hmm. She said, "I think if we were just going to say nope, we can't do this because of Senate rules, we wouldn't keep going." Yeah, which seemed to say that suggest that there is some yeah. kind of strategy. Although I don't want to. I don't want to guess about any kind of strategy among the Democrats because I've been disappointed before, but I'm hoping that there is some strategy behind the scenes. Angus There's, King said something similar, too, by Angus the way. Angus King said he said like, something
3: like, I don't if this fails, I don't know what happens after that. Right. So the
2: other options yeah, could Gus be Gus said uh, if, something similar to me, too. Yeah, of course. I call him Gus. <laughs> Gus, Gus King. Um, they're, they're, you Go know, off, trying King. to figure out trying to figure out what's going on with Manchin <laughs> and, and the Democrats. Um, so stupid. There is there is a possibility that some of these provisions could end up in the reconciliation bill. Oh, give me a fucking break! I know. Yeah. Give me Look, a fucking break! I'm, no, I'm no. just fucking Dumb. reading the news. I don't don't think it. I believe this is going to happen. So, well, I'm just going to tell. Uh, it's a I'm tax gonna, credit I'm to, to not
3: ex- deny the right to vote.
2: I'm trying to explain to our listeners what's That's what happening. That horse shit. You put it. You could say that states get money for to administer elections only if they meet the following standards: you must have automatic voter registration, you must not purge the rolls, and blah 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 blah. So. Would that fly through reconciliation? We don't know. Would some states that are maybe Republican states opt out and decide to not take the cash like they have done with Medicaid expansion for the last 10 years? Yeah, probably. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> these, are, these governors. Seems tricky. Repu- Seems
3: tricky. Republican states r- decided to let huge portions of their population go without health care. To make a point that they didn't like Barack Obama. Still are.
2: You, still still are. are. How many years later? <laughs> you think they're going to
3: do, they're going to be like, this is against our interests, but we, uh, want well. that. we
2: want that money to administer free and fair elections. Yeah, that's their concern. Yeah, very silly. Um, then there's me. the question, like, is there a car, is it not a carve out, but are we going back to some kind of filibuster reform? Would Manchin say, okay, 41 Republican senators have to be on the floor the entire time in order to filibuster this bill. And then hoping that, you know, some of the old's like Chuck Grassley, finally get tired and have to leave and go to bed. You know, that's that's the other that's the other hope here.
0: Yeah, I do. Are th- you I <laughs> think betting on, betting on the prostate.
3: <laughs> get you yeah, off that floor. Yeah. Some of these guys have to pee every 30, 40 minutes. Anyway, you know, that's our hope. So I, I do. Th- but I do think that like that Joe Manchin, you know, he's he has expressed in the past openness to those kinds of reforms. A lot of this is semantic. If you could do something that he can say is not a carve out. It can still fit with what he said to Jake Tapper. There are a lot of place, a lot of places this can go that really are hopeful. Doesn't mean it's not on the a head long of a check pin here. We are, we <laughs> are, because these are idiosync. We are because uh, because uh, uh, Cal Cunningham uh, uh, loves to fuck, and we can't win a seat in Maine. We're stuck with the idiosyncratic decision making of two people that are not acting in the best interest of this country. And I don't know what that's that's the reality.
2: Look. Boo on Cal Cunningham, but I think you sort of glossed over the big fuck-up in Maine there. No, no. Right. Joe well, Biden won that state by a lot. Yeah. Sarah Gideon. Okay. Still oh, got God. a lot of money. Such a Maine homer. Still
0: got a... John goes st- to Maine for a week and he's defending that... I'm suddenly, I'm, not, <laughs> suddenly I'm <laughs> fucking running in the second district.
3: Cal Cunningham uh, screwed a mistress and Sarah Gideon kind of screwed all of us.
0: True, <laughs> so try cut that. I, I, agree with I agree with you guys that I, I don't think that this... Cuck the voting rights legislation into reconciliation plan makes a ton of sense for all the reasons you just outlined. I do think it's fair to say that you could argue that the initial for the people act was a little too broad. I want public financing of campaigns, too. But that wasn't the acute threat that we are facing right now. I think even Amy Klobuchar was critical of how expansive the For the People Act was. So I'm hoping that she is working with this group of lawmakers that includes Manchin, that they're working on a a narrowed down bill. They'll convince him to do something that gets us past the filibuster and we'll actually get a vote on it. I, I mean, am I holding my breath? No, but it is existential. And I think if you're going to be critical of the Biden White House, this is the one place I do think they have not been fully engaged. And I, I'm not exactly sure what they should be doing, but everyone that talks to them about this set of issue comes away feeling like this isn't the priority that it should be, especially considering how much of his ability to get reelected lies with the need to hold on to the House by preventing this partisan gerrymandering. So I do hope that there is a renewed push on voting rights once the BIFF or the Bib or whatever the hell John is calling it these days is is, is through Congress.
2: I'm just, I'm very excited about an infrastructure deal. I don't know what your problem is. Look, I think, <laughs> I, I, I will say that well, I get? How'd,
3: how'd you get to Brooklyn? Fucking I, <laughs> uh, Zeppelin? You probably took a road,
0: a tunnel, or a fucking train. Sorry, you hate hypocrites. It was uh, a plane. It was a plane,
2: John. I am for any very creative, outside-the-box solutions here. You know, if they can figure out something in reconciliation, great. I'm doubtful, but I'm for it. You know, this is a... This is a mint the, the trillion dollar coin moment here. <laughs> still think we should have done that. No. Yeah, we should remember the debt limit. That was our that Throwback. Was the solution. Yeah, let's fucking do whatever to get this done. All right, when we come back, uh, Lovett and I will talk to Dr. Ashish Jha, the Dean of Public Health at Brown University, about all the latest pandemic news. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to
3: squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John?
2: Yeah, that's. I think thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I uh you know because we've been doing what a weekday mm-hmm. i actually put that
3: in my therapy spot you know i i replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast mm. it was a huge mistake so
2: uh what do you spend time doing in therapy now
3: well now i brought therapy back i okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because
2: uh it turns out talking that's about- going to make the jokes better <laughs> Last week, the CDC issued new guidance recommending that everyone, even vaccinated Americans, wear masks in indoor public settings if you live in a community with substantial or high COVID transmission. What prompted the shift was CDC data that suggests the small percentage of vaccinated people who do get infected with COVID can, in rare instances, transmit the virus to others. But if you're anything like us, you may have found both the CDC's communication on this issue and the subsequent media coverage confusing and or terrifying. Here to clear all of this up for us and more is someone who's been one of the most brilliant, sane, calming voices throughout the pandemic, the dean of Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha, welcome to the pod.
4: Hey, thank you so much for being here.
2: So I feel like what was missing from last week's CDC announcement was clear information that could help people, especially vaccinated people, reassess the risk to themselves and their families of getting really sick from the Delta variant. So we are sitting here in a county with high transmission in L.A. Uh, We're wearing masks in indoor public settings. But how should I think about other activities? I have an unvaccinated one-year-old at home. We spend a lot of time with my parents who are over 65. Is outdoor dining still okay? Outdoor gatherings, indoor gatherings where everyone's vaccinated? What do you think?
4: Yeah, it is confusing, you know, and there's a lot happening here. So let's break down kind of what we know and what we don't know. Um, what we have learned recently, which is not surprising because we never thought these vaccines were 100 percent, is that breakthrough infections happen. Sometimes you can have a you can be fully vaccinated and you'll have a breakthrough infection. And then the other thing we have learned, which actually we knew even from that. Remember that Yankees outbreak the at the clubhouse, where yeah. like seven mm-hmm. Yankee players got, you know, vaccinated people can spread it to others. Um, So that's not a huge surprise. I think fundamentally what people need to understand is breakthrough infections are rare and forward transmission, that is if you have a breakthrough infection, you're gonna give it to somebody else, is also pretty uncommon. And the most important piece of all of this is when it happens, people do really well. They have a kind of a miserable cold. Uh, they can be pretty miserable for a few days, but they get better. Very, very, very rarely do people end up getting hospitalized or dying from any of this. So if you have that as your mental model, it should start helping you make some decisions. And by the way, the other thing about Delta virus uh, variant is it is a bad version of the virus, but it's still the same virus, still does the same stuff. So... Outdoors, still really, really safe. Like, I would not worry about outdoor dining. I would not worry about getting together outdoors with large numbers of people. Maybe the super packed outdoor concert might get a little you know, a little uncomfortable. Maybe a political rally where no one's wearing a mask, maybe a little tight. But other than that, outdoor stuff is, I think, pretty safe. And on the indoor stuff, you know, the way I've thought about it is if you're in a room full of all vaccinated people, uh, you're in really. You have a very, very low risk of anybody uh, passing it on. The last part of this is about assessing risk. Um, if you're with a frail elder and you've been out partying and you've been exposed to a lot of unvaccinated people, it might be reasonable to put on a mask because the risk of a breakthrough infection for that frail elder could be really quite substantial. Kids, thankfully, don't get sick very much. And again, I don't want to minimize COVID in kids. There's been a lot of minimizing of that. Um, but, you know, I have a nine-year-old who's not vaccinated. That doesn't fundamentally alter my behavior. I don't I don't do particularly high-risk things, but I also don't worry excessively about him getting COVID. It's unlikely, and if he does, he'll probably do just fine.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, one more question on transmission. Uh, Israel's public health chief was on Face the Nation Sunday, and she said that their data shows... of vaccinated individuals who do become infected do not transmit the virus to anyone else. They said 10% transmit it to one person and less than 10% transmit it to more than one person. It sounds a lot less dire than the coverage around the CDC announcement. Like, does that make sense to you, that data? It
4: does, it does. And if you think about it, it it clinically and biologically makes sense, right? Because if you are unlucky enough to have a breakthrough infection, you still have an immune system that very rapidly clears the virus. That means you are contagious for a very short period of time, and you're not that contagious. So it makes sense that some people, you may get unlucky and have and you catch them in the contagious phase, and they may pass it on to one person. But most people who have breakthrough infections are not going to spread it. This is why vaccinated people are not driving the surge. The surge we're seeing in America is all about the unvaccinated, and the vaccinated are unfortunate bystanders to this. So
3: let's talk about how that (laughs) the disconnect between what the CDC has been saying and what the kind of news coverage has looked like. In the CDC's presentation that leaked to The Post, one of their concerns was that breakthrough cases would cause people to lose confidence in the vaccine. The presentation says they were worried the public would be convinced the vaccine is no longer working or that boosters would be needed. Important to update communications describing breakthrough cases as rare or a small percentage of cases. This was the CNN lead of the uh, uh, on that presentation. The Delta coronavirus variant surging across the United States appears to cause more severe illness and spread as easily as chickenpox. The document outlined unpublished data that shows fully vaccinated people might spread the Delta variant at the same rate as unvaccinated people. You know, the CDC has been communicating via the media for the entirety of this pandemic. It still feels as though there is a disconnect between uh, what they wish the coverage looked like and what coverage of their of their communications ends up actually being for ordinary people trying to keep up with this. What do you think has gone wrong in how the CDC communicates and what would you like to see them do differently?
4: Yeah. I, and there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think the CDC has largely been right on the science. And even here, uh, I think they were largely right. Uh, I think the there was one error in this instance, and this has come up a bunch is that they didn't release the data along with their proclamation. So early in the week, they said, we are making this change because we are aware of data, but that data then leaked out two days later. These data shouldn't be leaking. Like once you make the proclamation, put the data out there, right? right? This is not a national security secret, like just, and people, and then basically explain the data to people so they understand. When data leaks, there's always this sense that, ooh, there's something more serious or sinister or bad going on that it had to leak. That kind of stuff, I think, really does need to stop.
3: One aspect of this that was surprising is that we did learn that one data point that led to the updated mass guidance was the breakthrough cases in Provincetown. Uh, I I happen to have been there. Uh, I was protected because I refused to party and go out uh, because (laughs) I was uh, still reeling emotionally uh, from the last 14 months. That was my vaccine, being a fucking loser. But... uh, <laughs> but uh, were you surprised? <laughs> but it seemed to me that like it's this- <laughs> been protecting you your whole life. <laughs> yes, it, 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 never gotten the cold, doctor. The uh, uh, <laughs> but it was uh, it was surprising to me that that like that this incredible stress test of the vaccine led to these this update in a broader way. When to me this was a case of the vaccine holding up really well under like a, a true live fire exercise. Were you surprised that the Provincetown? cases were, were, were a critical part of this
4: update? I was. I, I did not think there was anything from the Provincetown update that surprised me in a negative way. And let me explain two parts of this. First of all, the big headline number, oh, these CT values were the same for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. By the way, we knew that from the Singapore outbreak as well. So that there was an outbreak of unvaccinated and unvaccinated people in Singapore at the airport about a month ago. Uh, so, so that that wasn't a huge surprise. And the second is I keep trying to remind people of the counterfactual. Imagine the same July 4th partying in P-Town if nobody had been vaccinated. You know what we would have seen? Tens of thousands of people infected, hundreds and hundreds of people in the hospital, probably many people on ventilators and eventually die, And then a local outbreak that would have become a regional outbreak right? This is now kind of Sturgis rally. I mean, this wasn't quite as big as a Sturgis rally, but it's kind of, these things trigger these massive regional outbreaks. Did that happen? No, it was, it was not great. A bunch of people got infected. A few people ended up getting hospitalized. Thankfully, no one has died. And then it sort of stopped because that's what vaccines do. So, You've touched on this a bit about, like,
3: the contagiousness of breakthrough cases in vaccinated people. One thing you said is that it may take place, but it might be shorter because their in- their immune systems are geared up, which is actually not something that has been kind of clearly communicated by the CDC. I thought this line from the Times coverage of what the CDC has been putting out to be kind of capt- to capture the confusion uh, in some of the coverage Dr. Dr. Walensky, the director of the agency, acknowledged on Tuesday that vaccinated people with so-called breakthrough infections of the Delta variant carry just as much virus in the nose and throat as unvaccinated people, and may spread it just as readily, if less often. Just as readily, if less often. Um, what what does that mean? <laughs> like, what, what what does it mean? What what are what are they saying here?
4: Yeah, I, I think that's first of all, I don't think that's consistent with the science. I don't think. Well, there, there are two problems here. One is these CT values that everybody's super excited about, they're called cycle threshold values, by the way. It's just a t- a, like a term for how uh, for the test. Anyway, the big picture bottom line on these CT values is CT values are not perfectly correlated with contagiousness. Nobody cares about CT values. We care about contagiousness. The second is it's a snapshot in time. So there is no reason to believe that people who are, who are have a breakthrough infection and are vaccinated Uh, can spread the virus as easily as unvaccinated people. I just think that's inconsistent with the data. I don't know if Dr. Walensky, she, by the way, is superb. So she knows this. I don't know if she misspoke or if it was mischaracterized, but this has been a consistent theme over the last week. This idea that somehow vaccinated people are out there spreading the virus all around and they're fueling the surge, they really aren't. That's not what's going on.
2: Uh, Are you concerned at all that Israel and the UK and now Germany have all decided to offer booster shots to the elderly and immunocompromised while our health officials are still debating the issue here? Like when should vaccinated Americans who are over 65 or immunocompromised start to worry about their immunity potentially waning?
4: Yeah, the data from uh, Israel suggests that after about six months, there is a waning of uh, of the antibodies, which may lead to more breakthrough infections. And so I've been worried. And you know where I'll tell you I've been worried. I've been worried about nursing homes and congregate care settings. And if you think about it, those were the folks who got vaccinated in like December and January. So they're hitting that six month mark now. Yeah, And you also know that 40 some odd percent of nursing home workers aren't even vaccinated at all. So we're gonna start seeing outbreaks in nursing homes and the FDA has data on whether a third shot could be helpful. I suspect it is helpful. It'd be really great if this FDA would make a determination on that.
2: Do you think that's going to happen soon? Because I guess we're, we're like you said, we're almost at the six month mark for December and January, folks.
4: Yeah, yeah, it, it should happen soon. I mean, there's been a little bit of like I think a lot of us have been uh, kind of scratching our heads at why the FDA has moved as slowly as it has on so many of these things uh FDA received Pfizer data on a third shot booster you know a while back and they should make a determination a bunch of other countries have done it and it'd be really helpful for the FDA to weigh in as well
3: a bunch of people in LA are putting on mustaches you know and getting getting third shots uh, illicitly <laughs> what do you think about that
4: <laughs> well this is actually part of the problem right is that if you if the FDA says no no we're going to take our time guess what a bunch of people are going to go out and do it anyway and the people who are going to go out and do it are better educated high information, high sort of social capital. And guess who's not going to do it? The frail elderly in nursing homes, the poorer people. So the best way to create more inequities is to have a government that's not super responsive and an agency that's not super responsive to the
2: data. So speaking of scary headlines, uh, here's a fun one from CNN over the weekend. UK scientists believe it is almost certain a coronavirus variant will emerge that beats current vaccines. Um, What is your reaction to that? And do you think will be able to update our vaccines quickly enough if if that happens, if such a variant emerges? Yeah,
4: First, I'm deeply skeptical of that ever happening. These vaccines are really extraordinary in kind of the breadth of response that they give. Right. We have the vaccines have now been tested against a whole set of different variants and they're holding up largely just fine. Uh, I guess it's theoretically possible. I I don't lose a lot of sleep over it, but let's say that like it happens because a lot we've had a lot of curveballs in this manner. So let's say it happens. Yeah, we've got um, both Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech that are very capable of turning around a new vaccine within weeks. And then the question for the FDA will, we, will be, how do they test it? And w- are they going to require you know kind of long uh, test times, or are they going to uh, you know authorize it pretty quickly? The, the regulatory stuff is going to be much slower, but the science on this can keep up with the virus pretty quickly.
2: So sort of last question on this, you know, over the last week, I've seen a bunch of scientists and public health experts quoted as saying that, you know, herd immunity isn't happening. COVID will become endemic. We'll basically have to learn to live with it for years to come. I know that's not actually as scary as it sounds, but what does learning to live with COVID as an endemic disease look like from a policy and public health perspective?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And, And there are two ways of learning to live with it, right? Is, it, is that do we manage to get pretty high levels of vaccination uh, and then learn to live with it where we have a few occasional uh, kind of breakthroughs and, uh, and some people occasionally get sick, but we develop some good antivirals and nobody, you know, people generally don't die or get particularly sick. And then we kind of go about our lives as like an annoyance or do we have a, a learn to live with it where, 25 30% of the population remains unvaccinated we see reasonably large outbreaks still happening among the unvaccinated uh spills over the, you know the the first version like life basically returns to a new normal things are pretty good the economy is humming along restaurants are full people generally are not worried right um in the second version you have occasionally cities having to put in mask mandates you have Uh, places having to shut down, you have like these kind of countermeasures these public health countermeasures that we have to do constantly being deployed locally in small areas, hospitals occasionally fill up, we have to respond to that. That kind of thing could go on for years if we don't get to like 85-90% of people vaccinated.
2: Okay, well, that is a uh, a good warning. Uh, Dr. Ashish Jaw, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming, us and hopefully everyone else down. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm
3: sorry. I um, I'm sorry. I cursed in your presence. I'm very, ser- very serious, very serious person. And I lowered the whole debate.
4: I uh, know. Uh, I appreciate that. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me on. It was a pleasure.
0: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest
1: materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use made-in cookware.
2: All right, I want to end with the story that caught our eye over the weekend titled The Real Source... ...of America's Rising Rage. Mother Jones' Kevin Drum did a fairly detailed analysis of why we've become so politically polarized since the turn of the century. And he considers a few popular theories. Our belief in conspiracy theories. Our use of social media. And our economic and social conditions. But ultimately, he concludes that Americans' belief in conspiracy theories has remained steady almost since our founding that our current polarization predates our increased use of social media, and that people are about as satisfied with their jobs and their lives as they have been in the past, according to polls. What's changed is Americans' distrust of institutions and anger towards government, and that began just a few years after the launch of the most influential source of propaganda the country has ever known. It turns out that the COVID vaccines, those wonder drugs that were absolutely perfect, that were more impressive than the moon landing, the drugs you were not allowed to question in any way, don't actually work in the way they told us they did.
1: And now you want to mask us because you clearly failed in your effort to get us vaccinated because the totalitarian impulse within you is so strong? Nothing makes sense.
2: That didn't take long. COVID hypocrite Nancy Pelosi already breaking her new mask rules. Republicans slamming the speaker for what they call a massive abuse of power in
0: the
1: House. If this were covered, Tucker, the way the riots of last summer were covered, it would be described as mostly peaceful. Yeah, and I think to a point. great extent it was peaceful, the picture that you've shown of the people who were in the Capitol building milling around, the guy walking around the Senate chamber with the horns on and so on, most of them were peaceful. Surprise, it's Fox
2: News. Uh, so Drum acknowledges that this is not exactly a surprising or exciting conclusion. But that while social media and conspiracy theories certainly act as fuel on the fire, it's Fox News that set the country ablaze, he writes. Uh, "Love it." what do you make of this theory and uh, his reasoning behind it?
3: I think it's very smart. I, what I, I read the piece and I shared it. And what I actually want is I think it's making a... a yeah, pre- so you
2: did all that you need to do. You read the piece. You shared it. Mission Roms accomplished. Solved. <laughs> I did my part
3: but what, what I did you hit that tweet button what it what it actually does call for though is i think people who are more versed in the data that he is using to justify ruling out some of these other causes to kind of push back on it where they can because it did feel like kevin drum has a point of view his all of his articles have headlines like fox news the root of all evil fox news killed my dog like that's sort of that's his uh, it's his beat and it's a and it's a great beat and he's very smart but i do think that like it's hard to know what the compound effects of, of of social media plus right-wing misinformation could be. Another point, actually, is just that sometimes it's about misinformation. Sometimes it's just about tone and the tenor of coverage and how, how people communicate with each other on, on social media. I also do think there are trends that maybe preceded the, the changes in our politics that took place since 2000, but they kind of concluded over these 20 years, one of them being the ideological shifting that led to uh, uh, kind of less heterodox views amongst Democrats and Republicans, some of the geographic sorting that we've been seeing. So I think it's a really smart point. I think the, the key takeaway, though, is regardless of whether or not he's underemphasizing other causes, to make a point, is I think sometimes we like to talk about what's new when the underlying causes are so boring. Why is Connor Lamb mad at AOC? Well, it could be because she's taken a position on to fund the police or it could be because Fox News is making everything worse like why are we talking about vaccine misinformation and vaccine hesitant well it could be because of all these other ancillary causes or it could be because Fox News is making everything worse and sometimes it's boring to talk about the same thing over and over again but we should concentrate on it because we actually just need to figure out what the
0: fuck to do about it. Tommy, what do you think? There's a really interesting piece. I think it's hard to point at one thing and say that's the reason we are more polarized, but a lot of the pieces of the story really rang true to me. He talks about how Fox News almost single-handedly manufactured the hysteria over critical race theory. Anyone who worked in the Obama administration would not be surprised by that. We watched them manufacture controversies about the war on Christmas, death panels, tan suits, Benghazi, the election lie, the vaccine coverage. Now, what's changed, I think, is the mainstream media at the time used to make the Obama administration treat Fox as real and credible and nonpartisan or like they were fair and balanced or had fair and balanced components now i think that that lie has been put to rest a little bit um kevin rudd who's the former prime minister of australia from the labor party has made similar observations about how the murdoch empire has distorted politics in australia because it is just relentlessly opposed to any sort of progressive economic policy it pushes climate denial you've also seen murdoch outlets fuck up politics in the UK they fought for brexit and then you look at canada where murdoch hasn't gotten into the market and their political process and debates are not nearly as broken i do think that you know kevin's piece probably underestimates what we discussed in this first topic which is how gerrymandering has changed political incentive structures in this country and you know if you had a fox news driving the republican party to the far right but 50-50 districts um, it would be disastrous for the Republican Party because in America we have a unique thing, which is party primaries and then party elections that are also popular elections. Our parties don't choose the person in the primary, right? we We vote for them twice. So if we were just getting far right candidates out of Republican primaries, thanks to Fox, they would get trounced in the general election., uh, but we have gerrymandered districts, so you don't. um you know the the challenge of like what to do about it is in recent years, Fox has been supplemented by other right-wing outlets that we talk about a lot: the Federalist, Breitbart. Um, you know, there's social media no- things, sites like Parler. There's Newsmax. There's also Facebook. You know, he talks about how social media is exacerbating the problem, but sort of dismisses it. I, I do think the problem with Facebook isn't just sharing Tucker Carlson clips on Facebook. The problem is also that like QAnon and anti-vaccine groups were able to organize and reach a critical mass on Facebook and then get covered by Fox. So it's this vicious death spiral happening. So I don't know, like at the end of the day, Fox's core product is like white grievance and fear. I will never forget uh, 2012 and 2008. Fox News found this one random member of the new Black Panther Party just standing outside of a polling location in Philadelphia and did roadblock coverage of this guy all day long because they were trying to scare white voters out of voting for Obama. And, you know, that kind of tells you all you need to know about them. Like when the chips are down, that's what they focus on. That's what the side that they're on. And that's what their their goal is, is just to scare these old white voters out of progressive politics.
2: I totally agree that it's an excellent analysis that does minimize a bit, in my view, the role of social media. And I always think about the story that Dan tells about um, the IRS scandal in 2013. And when that first happened, you know, everyone at the White House was like, "Okay, it's another Fox driven thing, right? Fox only reaches a couple million people. And so it's probably an inside D.C. Fox thing that's not going to go anywhere. And people in most of the country aren't going to give a shit about this. And then we did a bunch of focus groups in Ohio and everyone was talking about the IRS scandal. And the difference was Facebook. And that there hadn't been Facebook or Facebook hadn't really taken off in some of these past scandals. And so I I think that, you know, you can't underestimate enough or, you you know, you, you can't minimize the role of social media and especially Facebook in giving Fox just a new weapon. Um, to spread all of their lies and bullshit and conspiracy theories. And I think Fox News, you know, they sort of set the tone and they, they sort of drive a lot of this bullshit. But um, without Facebook, without social media, I don't think you'd have the reach um, that you have today. And I think that you wouldn't have people as angry as you do today.
3: Yeah, I do think it is hard. Some of this, you can look for it in data. Um, But the the I think it's in this piece, or maybe it's another piece, where he talks about how everyone just kind of, we know the people in our lives are angrier. We know. We see it in our lives. We see it in our families. We see it in our communities. We see it on television. We see it everywhere. How do you find that in the data? How do you how do you source that point to what caused it? We're not doing a double blind experiment within America that doesn't have Fox News, but does have social media. So I do think these things are ultimately hard to tease out. But I do think what I took away from the piece is let's not take our eyes off of the challenge. Fox News is regardless of these other causes, one of the greatest threats to this country and its future. It is every single day. And I think sometimes it is discouraging because we don't know what to do. But I do think we need to be more um, explicit in, in saying it. And then I do think we need to have conversations about the kind of boycotts that work, targeted boycotts. We should look at the moments when Fox News changed course and what caused them to change course. Sometimes it's boycotts. Sometimes it's other forms of public pressure. I think we need to be more Uh, um, um, proactive and more deliberate and more concerted in our attention to the
2: threat Fox News. Yeah, and when you say we, I totally agree with this. Like, I think that, um, like you pointed out, Tommy, Reporters have gotten better about this, mainstream reporters, at, at, at calling Fox out and being and confident enough to say that Fox is a propaganda outlet. They never used to be. Then it sort of started where some of the media reporters would say it. People like Brian Stelter would point yeah. out and stuff like that. And now it's gone to more mainstream reporters. You see some folks on CNN calling them out regularly, so that's good. But I still think like reporters should not treat fox reporters and people who work at fox as their colleagues they should not show them like they fox exists to destroy the mainstream media and to undermine trust in the mainstream media and reporters all should recognize this and if they and if they do recognize it they should say it publicly i also think progressive donors (laughs) right like you know I, i talked to stephanie valencia about this uh in terms of the latino vote a couple episodes ago but she pointed out that story that you know Progressive donors, liberal donors dropped 14 million dollars in South Florida in the last week of the election, while uh, Republicans bought a radio station in South Florida for three hundred fifty thousand dollars that they turned into a right wing radio station. So a lot more bang for your buck there than just dumping money on digital ads in the last week of an election. And
3: one other uh, one other distinction I think that we should uh, stop pretending matters is the distinction between their, quote, news end quote side and their opinion side.
2: Huge. Uh, and, And he makes that point. It is
3: obscene. It is obscene. If you had a fire department where six of the firefighters uh, put out fires and three of them set fires, you wouldn't be like, I don't think we're giving enough credit to the ones on the truck that are helping. you would be like, that's a terrible fucking fire department. Shut them down. <laughs> Shut them down. Don't call them.
2: Drum makes the point in the piece that that's actually One of the big reasons Fox is so influential because he says part of the answer probably lies in the fact that Fox News is cloaked in the trappings of news. And that's one reason you get 65 percent of Republicans and independents saying that they trust Fox News more than any other news outlets. Right. It's not just Tucker and Hannity, even though they're the worst defenders and say the worst shit. It's that they see other news that's supposed to be nonpartisan, fair and balanced, and people fucking buy it. No, no one knows. We are the only
0: ones who know there's a distinction. It's a bunch of white guys in ties at desks reading news. And like there's no like the chiron that goes up when you go from news to the opinion side. But no, you just know, get the, this, the challenge. For, if, is, if you love it, if you love it, the shows just get better for three hours. That's right. I mean, like in terms of what to do about like, yeah, I I give a lot of credit to groups like Sleeping Giants that have gotten advertisers to stop advertising on shows like Tucker Carlson when he does or says racist things. I I agree that strategic boycotts are good. There's an effort called Unfox My Cable Box that is trying to get providers to drop Fox News from cable packages. But it's basically just a letter writing campaign. and And that's a broader challenge because Fox makes most of its money by charging cable news subscribers like all of us uh whether we watch Fox or not so you know my hope is that long term that their revenues will be hurt by cord cutting but I think that my own self-interest view here is that progressives need to create our own progressive media fight fire with fire it doesn't have to be racist lying nonsense it could be a different flavor and tone than Fox but like we need to make a counter argument because I don't think that these right wing outlets are going anywhere. It, in fact, I think they are growing and proliferating because right wing donors see them as political weapons to help them get, you know, regulations stripped away and tax cuts and it's an investment for them and it's paid them handsomely over time.
2: Yeah, we we always want more competition here at Crooked Media where we welcome we more do. competition.
0: I guess the uh, no, (laughs) Uh,
3: no. But I I do think actually, like this points to another asymmetry that's part of this, and actually a way in which, uh, like the yawning chasm where we have these super rich people with unlimited funds, like influences our politics in other ways. Republican money supports right wing media, and you know who writes uh, really powerfully about that? Never heard of her. The the uh, if you're going to say Jay Mayer, I've never heard that name before. I was um, going to say Jane Mayer. I, Tommy, I don't think
2: was paying attention.
3: But, but I was like, Jane Mayer. But the but the but the further you get the la- like liberal money, like the grassroots gets behind someone like Bernie. But the further you up the money ladder you go, the more moderate become the quote unquote Democratic like backers. And so like you just don't have the same thing. There is no Koch brother. You talk to you talk about uh, Soros as like an exception that proves the rule, but they look more like Bloomberg. You know, like looking for a moderate, a center left, or even a center option. And like that asymmetry isn't going anywhere.
2: Yeah. And they're spending like billions of dollars on like depolarization efforts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's bring more people together at conferences. That's, I don't know whose <laughs> voice that is. No, it's really good. I don't know either. Anyway, so yeah, we have to. So Fox is bad. In conclusion, Fox News is bad. That's why you come here for hot takes like that.
0: I do think, look, it's it's valuable to see a data driven case made like kevin did in in that piece because i do think look a lot of very serious very smart good reporters would beat their chest and yell at the obama administration when we didn't include fox news in some you know round robin set of interviews with the networks and they made us treat them like they were on the level and they were not and that made the reporters who did that part of the problem and like pieces like this i think help make the the counter argument Totally yeah. agree. And one one last thing I'd say,
3: too, is one way I think you can take you can kind of deal with this in your own life is I do think like a lot of political conversations uh, are a lot of like, what happened? What happened to our country? What led to this? These kind of rhetorical, big, sweeping things. Just answer like, I should Fox News. Yeah, I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's just
2: made a bunch of people really angry, yeah. uh, hate our institutions and our government. That's yeah, and we should that's... fight it.
3: <laughs> and, and now we can move on to appetizers. All
2: right. That's our show for today. <laughs> Thank you. To Dr. Ashish Jha for joining us and calming us all down. Um, thank you, Tommy, for joining us from Brooklyn. Hey, you're welcome. I'm hey, making Jay. you
0: guys just this much uh, cooler. Tommy is uh, Tommy's in a VW bus following Jane Mayer around on tour. I <laughs> <laughs> I, I put on the headphones just in time to hear uh, Lovett telling the doctor about how his lack of social life saved
2: him from the Delta variant. So that, was, that was a fun treat for me. It was the highlight of the pod today what's reality. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you on Thursday. Bye. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Nar Melkonian, who film and share our
1: episodes as videos every week.